You may be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 6 to 20. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Habakkuk, but, so I want to remind you that you know, it's a little tiny book, only three chapters. Uh, it, you can find it just to the right of the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, D- Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you go too far to the right, you'll hit the New Testament, so you have to go a little bit back to the left, and you keep doing that, you'll find Habakkuk. And um, that reminds you of the setting that we learned in, in chapter 1. The prophet Habakkuk raises a prayer complaint up to God, and the complaint is that he looks around, and on what he sees there in Judah among the people of God is is rampant sin and wickedness. He sees evil and unfaithfulness all around him, and so he cries out to God, God, how, how long will this continue, and why are you letting this continue? How long and why? He cries out, you know, God, I, I know you see this, but it seems as if, from my perspective, that, you're, that you don't care. God, I know you've brought about revival before, like in the days of King Josiah. When are you going to bring about another revival? That's what we need. How long and why? And then the second part of of chapter 1, God responds. And he says to the prophet, I do care, I do see, and I am doing something, and I'm going to do something. However, You should brace yourself because the the cure is going to be more painful than the disease because what I'm doing is that I'm raising up and I'm going to send the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, this this bitter, hasty, dreaded, fearsome nation, and they're they're going to come and they're going to invade and they're going to conquer and they're going to carry the Judeans away to exile. And so the the outline of Habakkuk is this complaint, God, how long and why? You have God's response, I'm sending the Babylonians. Then the prophet responds, but God, they're so much worse than we are. I mean, we're not perfect, and we're not good, but they're really, they're really, really bad and really, really sinful. How is it that you are going to send them to conquer us when they're so much worse than we are? And then God, we, last time we were in Habakkuk, we saw the beginning of God's response. And part of that was Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. The God reminds the prophet, the righteous are not the Judeans and the unrighteous the Babylonians. The unrighteous are those who are arrogant, who are prideful, who refuse to come to me and my word and my covenant promises in faith while the righteous will live by faith. And then today we look at the the rest of God's response to the prophet's second prayer complaint, and it's going to be five woes. And these five woes are most certainly directed first and foremost to the Babylonians because God makes it clear that the Babylonians, although they are coming and they're going to conquer and they're going to temporarily win and they're going to carry God's people away into exile, that they will not ultimately get the last word. The Babylonians will not ultimately win. There will come a time when they're going to be judged for their sin. 
But I think it's also important for us to keep in mind as we come to this text that these five woes I don't think are only meant for the Babylonians. That these five woes are also meant as a warning and a call to repentance to the people of God as well. I mean, remember that the prophet's first prayer complaint to God had to do with the wickedness and the injustice and the violence that he saw all around him there in Judah among God's people. And so remember that, 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 that's, that the, the woes and these cries of judgment that no doubt have the Babylonians in mind are also things that the Judeans need to listen to and even they themselves are guilty of and need to repent of. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Habakkuk 2, verse 6, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to look at this passage by simply walking through um, the five woes, look at, walking through them one at a time. And, and I know in, in many ways that it's possible that you know, as you're, you're listening to this, I read that whole passage, and your eyes kind of glaze over, and you go, okay, I'm trying to pay attention, but I don't know exactly what's happening here. And, and that's okay. I understand that as we go through these five woes one at a time, I believe what you're going to see is this passage is actually pretty simple. 
is actually very clear. Here's the overarching point, that there's not a big difference between the, the five woes, that they're all kind of saying the same thing. And what they are saying is, it's God speaking to Habakkuk. I know you're anxious. I know you're troubled. I, I know you're, you're burdened with what you see around you among your people. And I know you're, you're, you're troubled and perplexed by how is it that I, I, your God, can use the Babylonians as an instrument in my hand for discipline on my own people. But make no mistake, evil will not ultimately triumph. That ultimately I will put all the wrongs to rights. And so let's, let's look at these five woes. Beginning in verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, with scoffing and riddles for him. And so before we get into the, the first woe itself, it's important to understand, okay, what verse 6 is saying and what these woes really are. And so notice in verse 6, the him is representing Babylon, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. I think it's also representing all of the proud, arrogant um, and unrighteous who refuse to live by faith in the one true God and his promises. Right, I've already said that these, are, that these woes are from God to the Babylonians, but not only to them, because they're also for all the unrighteous and wicked people in the world, even Habakkuk's neighbors living in Judah. Okay, but looking at verse 6, notice that phrase, shall not all these. Okay, well, who are all these? Well, all these are the peoples and the nations who are conquered and oppressed and mistreated and sinned against by the wicked, by the Babylonians and by others, and noticed looking at verse 6, that one day the tables will be turned. That one day, it says, they will take up their taunt against the wicked. Do you see that? That what they're going to take up are taunts, woes, pronouncements of judgment. That one day the wicked will be taunted, mocked, ridiculed, scoffed at because of their sin, as our good and sovereign God brings about his righteous justice on the sins of the wicked. And so listen to how Scottish pastor and theologian John Mackay puts it. Woe, or alas, was originally a cry associated with a funeral and was followed by the name of the one who had died. It gave expression to the grief felt at the loss suffered. The prophets instead linked the cry of woe with a description of the behavior of those who were still alive. It was a very vivid way of pressing home how reprehensible their conduct was in the sight of God. They were already as good as dead because God had given his verdict against them. And in many ways, that's what we see here about the Babylonians. Right? These woes are primarily directed at the Babylonians, but remember, they're also for the people of God to hear and to heed and to lead them to repentance. So John Mackay goes on and says, When the cry of woe was uttered regarding the covenant people, it alerted them to the danger of their conduct and constituted, in effect, a call for repentance. A similar pronouncement of woe could also be made regarding foreign nations. In such circumstances, the aim of the prophecy was primarily to assure the Lord's people that God's judgment was impending for their enemies and to encourage them to remain loyal to him despite their present difficulties. 
These five woes foretell the coming doom of the Babylonians as a consequence of their cruel and unprincipled conduct. Okay, so as we study these five woes, we should search our own hearts for where we need to turn from our sin, for where we need to repent, and where we need to turn to God for his forgiving grace and his sustaining grace and his sanctifying grace. And as we study these five woes, then we should find great comfort in the truth that our good and sovereign and holy and righteous God, he's not blind to the evil that we see in the world and that we experience in our lives. And that one day he will put all the wrongs to right. That one day the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. So let's look at the first woe. And I'll, I'll title the first woe as, there will be a day when the plunderers will be plundered. The plunderers will be plundered. Look at verses 6 to 8. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. So the Babylonians, they heaped up and they stole what did not belong to them. And they made the, 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 the conquered peoples, uh, they loaded the conquered peoples with pledges, meaning that they ruthlessly made their, the conquered peoples pay them taxes, pay them tribute. Therefore, they, they plundered the nations. But do you see what, what God says to Habakkuk? That one day, the tables are going to turn. Do you see that? That one day, the plunderers, they're going to be plundered. There's going to be justice. There's going to be just recompense. And actually, we see that in each of these five woes. In each instance, the, the, the punishment fits the crime or the justice you know, fits their sin. So you put, put another way, over and over again throughout the rest of this chapter, we see very clearly that sin never makes things better. It never takes us where we want to go. It's never ultimately worth it. It seems as if the Babylonians are being rewarded for being so wicked and so vile and so ruthless. They're willing to do anything to win. And it seems as if that's what anyone would have to do to be able to stop them. But God does not turn a blind eye to evil, to injustice, and to wickedness that ultimately nations peoples, and even individuals do not get away with their sin. That God will bring about just and righteous judgment at the perfect and appointed time. L listen to how the Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, and this is a wonderful summary of this whole chapter. The five woes recorded in this chapter are true not only with respect to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, but as a universal principle in history. Everything that is evil is under the judgment of God. Though the Chaldeans were to be raised up to flourish for a while, the limit of their prosperity was absolutely fixed. The wicked may triumph for a while. They may flourish as the green bay tree, but it's not going to last. Their doom is sealed. The principle for us to hold on to is that God is over all. The way of the transgressor is hard, whether it be an individual a nation, or the whole world. 
Your worldly man may make a fortune by evil business methods and arrive at the top, but see the end of the ungodly. Okay, so look again at verses 6, 7, and 8, and specifically notice in verse, uh, where is it? Notice in verse 7, that word suddenly. See, the turnabout happens, and the turnabout happens suddenly. Like the wicked, they, they feel safe and secure, invincible. And they appear to all of us as safe, secure, untouchable, invincible. Then there's a sudden reversal of fortunes for them. Right, Judah. Judah was plundered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But then guess what happened in 539 B.C.? The Persians conquered and plundered the Babylonians. And this is what happens all throughout world history, right? It happens to the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and the list goes on and on. And this also suddenly happens to individuals too, right? That we can, we can scheme to get ahead in some unethical, unjust, self, self-serving, deceitful way, but then ultimately, many times, oftentimes, our sinful plan will just suddenly turn on ourselves. And we find ourselves falling into our own trap. Listen to how Psalm 7 puts it. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. You know, he's got a scheme, he's carrying it out, and suddenly he falls into his own hole. Or Proverbs 6, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Proverbs 29.1, he who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken and beyond healing. The tables turn before we know it. So this first woe is the plunderers will be plundered. The second woe describes how our places of security, if that place of security is not found in God, our place of security will ultimately fail us. It will fail us. It will let us down. It will prove to not be safe, to not be secure, to not be reliable. So look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. And so here in verse 9, this second woe is given to us in the form of a metaphor about building a house or building a nest. Okay, a bird building a nest. So God is mixing his metaphors here, but you, you see the point, right? The wicked builds his house with evil gain. The wicked thinks... That he's like an eagle who's building a, a great and high and secure nest on the highest tree, on the highest rock. Right? The, the wicked think that they're invincible, that they're untouchable, they're unreachable, they're safe, secure, out of the way of harm. But what God says is that's never the case. It only appears to be the case. They're so short-sighted that they don't realize that I am God and they are not. Look at verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. 
Right? The Babylonians had no idea that their evil ways and evil methods would bring them shame. And often is the case for us. That we think we'll get away with it. That no one will know. But the same is true for us whenever we decide to sin in order to build our houses for our own glory. We soon discover that we never, ever, ever build enough. That we never, ever, ever acquire enough. And that we have to sin more and more to get more. And compromise more and more to get more. And lie more and more to get more. And in our quest to build our house of security and glory. But ultimately, we end up building houses of shame and, dis- and disgrace. Right? Because one lie leads to another. So look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So notice this, that the, that, that the stone cries out, and the wooden beam answers. This call and response. It's a, it gives a, a whole different meaning to that saying, if walls could talk, doesn't it? See, the point is that the wicked will eventually reap what they sow. Pastor John Courage says, in the walls and beams are chanting to one another that the ways and devices of the unrighteous will come back on their own heads. There's this boomeranging back of our sin back on ourselves. And so the first woe, the plunder will be plundered. Secondly, our places of security, if not found in God, if he's not our rock and our refuge, our places of security will ultimately fail us. The third woe is our sinful efforts will ultimately be for nothing. Okay, so do you hear a theme? You see, these five woes are very much connected, that that God is saying to the prophet over and over again much the same thing. Things are not what they seem. I am still in control. Evil will not ultimately triumph. So look at verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts, that is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? You see, evil will not ultimately win. That the evil and the wicked will spend all of their efforts, all of their lives, trying to acquire enough to build enough. But if they're doing it sinfully at the expense of others and for their own glory, look at what God says. They're wearying themselves for nothing. They're wearying themselves, they're wearing themselves out for nothing. That it's not going to last. Again, John Courage says, the reality of their activity is pointedly defined. They weary themselves and tire themselves out for nothing. This latter term is used in the Old Testament in a literal sense of an empty pit or an empty vessel. The unrighteous strive to get goods by extortion, malice, and mendacity, yet these very things have little true and lasting value. They fix their eyes on a prize that is fleeting. It is merely an illusion, and so they end up holding an empty sack. Right? I mean, what, 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 a, what a picture. They wear themselves out. They spin themselves. They, make, they sacrifice everyone and everything and they ultimately end up holding an empty sack. So I think it's worth, again, for us to not just think about the wicked nations, but also to think about us. I mean, friends, what, what are you pursuing? What are you chasing? 
For what are you wearing yourself out? What are you sacrificing in order to get it? Is it your health? Is it your marriage? Your children? Your friendships? Your relationships? I mean, how many people do we know who have so very much, way more than enough, and yet it's beyond obvious that they're unhappy and they're miserable? I mean, maybe it's some of us sitting in this very room. I mean, haven't we seen this so many times in our lives, in the lives around us? I mean, haven't we attended funerals where it was very clear that the person had worked so hard? They had worked tirelessly. They had spent themselves. They had poured themselves out, but ultimately for an empty sack. They wearied themselves for nothing. They end up holding an empty sack. Okay, well, what is worth wearing ourselves out for? What is worth pouring ourselves out? Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, again, God is telling the prophet, evil will not triumph in the end. God will triumph. The various nations and kingdoms of the earth will rise and they'll fall, but the kingdom of God has no end, and one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. Right? Therefore, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Right? The reason why the wicked and the unrighteous will ultimately wear themselves out for nothing is because one day all they pursue, all they sacrifice for, will be burned up in the fire of God's judgment because one day Christ will return and the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. But one day the whole earth will finally and gloriously be filled to the brim as the waters cover the sea with the glory of God, filled and indwelt with God's holiness and his glory for all eternity. But evil will not win, will not triumph. So these woes say the plunderer will be plundered. Our places of security, if it's not God, will fail us. Our sinful efforts will ultimately be for nothing. The fourth woe If we shame others, then we will be shamed. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make him drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now, I don't think this means that the Babylonians were literally serving free drinks to the peoples they conquered in order to get them drunk. Rather, the point is that they took advantage of others. They oppressed others. They forced others to do shameful things. And so again, John Curd is helpful here. He says, he accuses them in verse 15 of persuading others to join their cause and engage in their corrupt activities. The Hebrew text literally says that they make their neighbors drink so that he joins with your rage. In other words, the wicked ones force others to drink of their ways and join them in wrathful and ungodly activity. Right? Part of the deceitfulness of sin. Part of the sinfulness of sin is that sin so often insists that we invite others to join in in our sin, in our wrongdoing. But if or when we do this, what Habakkuk is teaching us is that we reap shame and not glory for ourselves. Look at verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. You see, as we've seen over and over again in this chapter, 
that our sin has a way of, of boomeranging back on us. And if you look at that, that second sentence in verse 16, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Think about what that means. I think, I think that, again, that God, speaking to the prophet, has in mind the Babylonians, the uncircumcised pagans, who by their sin and by their shame are revealing who they are. They're uncircumcised, uncircumcised in the flesh. They're uncircumcised of heart. They are separated from the covenant God and his covenant people and his covenant promises. But also think about this, that that also kicks as hard as it shoots for the people of God. The people of God, Habakkuk's neighbors, if, if they heard this, it would not be sufficient for them to say, oh, well, we are circumcised. He's not talking about us. It's like, no, no, no. The outward physical circumcision of the people of God was never meant to be an end in itself. As we see all throughout the scriptures, outward physical circumcision was always meant to point to and to call for inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. And so what God is saying is that even you, my covenant people, if you give yourself over to shame and shameful things and wickedness and mistreatment of others and oppression of others and sinning to build your house and to, to, to store up all these things for yourself, then you are just showing, you're going to be exposed one day for living just like the Babylonians. You're no better than them because the righteous will live by faith. Now look at the rest of verse 16 and verse 17. The cup is in the Lord's hand, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And so here we see more examples of wanton destruction and violence from the Babylonians. And, and, that, and the point being that, that that's, all of that will also not go unpunished. But I want us to think about the cup that's in the Lord's right hand. That it will come to you. And that's part of the woe, part of the, the statement of judgment. I mean, sometimes in the Old Testament, the cup that's in the Lord's hand is the cup of salvation, but most of the references in the Old Testament to the cup that's in the Lord's hand is it's a cup of his just, holy, and righteous wrath for sin. And so this fourth woe says, you think what you're doing and how you're living brings you glory, but it really only brings you shame. And if you don't repent, and if you don't turn from your sin, and if you don't begin to live by faith in the one true living God and his word and his covenant promises, then it will bring his wrath upon you. Think about, think about in the New Testament where the cup of the Lord is really put on full display that comes into focus. Think about in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before the cross. Jesus prays three times for God to remove the cup from him. He says, you know, but not my will, but your will be done. And God does not remove the cup from him. And so in John 18, 11, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And Jesus would indeed drink the cup of God's just, holy, and righteous wrath for the sins of the world. And Jesus drinks that cup down to the very dregs on the cross. And that, my friends, is why there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, we were objects of wrath, but we aren't any longer. Why? Because Christ drank the cup down to the very last drop, and so there's no more wrath, no more condemnation for those who by faith rest and receive Christ as their Savior. And so let me ask you this morning, are you resting in Christ as your Savior? Now, if immediately you begin to think, well, I'm trying really hard. You know, yes, there was a time when I, went down, I walked down the aisle and I prayed a prayer. And, you know, from time to time, I'm kind of reminded of it and I try really hard to be good. I'm not asking you, did you do something at one time years ago? I'm not asking you, are you trying really hard to clean yourself up? I'm asking you, are you resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf? See, the good news of the gospel, the offer of the gospel, is confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. To realize that Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among us to live a perfect, holy, sinless life. The life that not one of us in this room has ever or will ever live. He lived that life on our behalf. And he went to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath to take the, on our behalf, to drink it down to the very last drop, to take the punishment that our sins deserve upon himself in our place as our substitute. So that when we trust in Christ, we are forgiven because he's taking the punishment that we deserve. But even so much more than being forgiven, we are clothed in his righteousness, that his righteous record becomes ours. So the question is, are you resting in the finished work of Christ today? Maybe the next question is, well, or do you want to? I mean, even as we're going through these woes and we're talking about how, how sin is never worth it, it never delivers on its promises. Listen, if you're here today and you're saying, yes, you know what, Richard? I'm tired. I am tired of chasing after all of these lies, hoping it would finally make my life okay. And I'm tired of, of, of seeing that sin never makes anything better. It never makes my life okay. Then come to Christ. He is the Savior you need. You are not so sinful that he will turn you away. And you have nowhere else to go. Come to him. Trust in him. You will find forgiveness of your sins. He'll clothe you in his righteousness. He'll put his Holy Spirit within you. He'll give you a new heart. You'll be born again. But come to Christ. And so we see here in this chapter, the plunderer will be plundered. Our places of security will fail us. Our sinful efforts will ultimately be for nothing. If we shame others, we will be shamed. And then lastly, the fifth woe is a woe to all who trust in idols. And so look at verses 18 and 19. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. You understand what, what God is saying to the prophet? I mean, it's actually pretty simple. You know, what, what prophet is an idol? when the one who worships the idol is the one who made it. 
It's of no profit whatsoever. It's of no help. It has no power. You know, if, if you want to do some study for yourself today, go read Psalm 115. Go read Isaiah 44. Great passages that talk more about idolatry. He goes on, can a wooden thing speak? The answer is, of course not. Can a stone speak? Of course not. It can't make you any promises. It can't deliver on any promises. It can't give you any real hope. You know, even if, if it's overlaid with gold and silver, and it's made to look pretty and to sparkle, it has no breath in it. It's lifeless, powerless, worthless. So Habakkuk 2 ends with, Woe to all who trust in idols and false gods. And then there's this contrast between that which is lifeless and powerless and worthless, although some worship it, with the one who is the one true living God and who sits on his throne in his temple. Look at Habakkuk 2 verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I love how one commentator put it. What a fitting doxology to the dialogue between the Lord and the prophet. The Lord is not mute, dumb, deaf, and powerless like the idol gods. He is enthroned in his temple. He's reigning over the universe he created. He is sovereign in all things. God is in control even when everything and everyone seems out of control. The whole world should be in silent reverence before his holy presence. The Lord's presence in his temple means that he has not forsaken his people. Okay, so look again at Habakkuk 2 verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. You understand what this verse means for us today? What, what it ought to mean for us? You see, I, it's impossible for me to know all that's happening in your hearts and your lives. And there's no way for you to know all that's happening in, in my heart, in my life. But verse 20 is a precious reminder that God knows all that's happening in our lives. Right? That God knew what was happening in Habakkuk's heart. And he knows your heart and my heart too. And he knows the sin that we need to confess and that we need to repent of and turn away from. And so, friends, confess it. Repent of it. Run to Christ. He will give you the grace that you need to follow him today. He will do that. But verse 20 is also a reminder that God knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. I mean, he really, really does. And you know what he says to you? He says, hush. Hush and know that I am in my holy temple. I am seated on my throne. I am the one and only living God. There is no other. And I am in control. I don't know how it appears to you, but I am always working. And be encouraged. He says, hush, be encouraged. Evil will not ultimately win. That I will one day put all things to rights. One day the knowledge of my glory will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. He says, he says, hush, and know that I love you. I loved you enough to send my son to live for you, to die for you, to rise from the grave to save you. And so do not fear. Bring your cares, your concerns, your burdens to me. I am your God. 
Quiet your heart. Look to me. Trust me. Trust the promises that are in my word, which are absolutely true, and they're given to you in love for your good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that we know what it feels like to be perplexed, confused, just like the prophet Habakkuk. We know certain things are true about you and your character, your nature, your attributes, you're holy, you're good, you're loving, and you're sovereign, you're in control. You care about us. And we struggle because we, we see what's happening in our lives and to us and to those we love and around us and it's on the news and, and we struggle. And so, Father, thank you for your word, which reminds us that today, tomorrow, and always, Lord, that you, you are in your holy temple, you are seated on your throne, and that you are in control even when everything and everyone seems to be out of control. Father, please help us to believe this. Help us to cling to these truths today and tomorrow and the next day. And Lord, we long for the day when the knowledge of your glory will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the seas. Lord, come, Lord Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.